Jeremy Lin. 11 days ago, who had heard of him? Now, who hasn't? Insanity. There was like an excitement. I don't think I had ever felt. A magical night for Jeremy Lin. He's the hero from Harvard. When you're a Knicks fan, you're looking for joy anywhere you can find it. <laughs> Lynn, we going to win 1-7. Keep it. we going to heaven. It was the joyous time as a Knicks fan I'd had since the 90s. You have been surpassed as the most famous person who was a Harvard graduate. Jeremy. I knew about Jeremy before you did. Jeremy was such a bright spot. It didn't matter who we played. What was it like to be gunning it out, so to speak, with Kobe Bryant? <laughs> We just try to play together. We weren't really too worried about There's no team that can hang with us right now. I don't know in my 24 years of covering this league. Linsanity is starting to spread to China. Whether I've seen or felt anything quite like this. Fellas, you have Linsanity? I mean, I am criminally Linsane. There was something about the magic that was going on at MSG when, when Jeremy had Linsanity going. Linsanity continues here at Madison Square Garden as the undrafted point guard from Harvard electrifies MSG once again. In February of 2012, Jeremy Lin became not just the king of New York, he was the king of the basketball world. He injected the Knicks fan base with a level of excitement rarely seen in sports, and his impact spread beyond basketball. And as quickly as Lin's sanity ignited, the phenomenon burnt out even quicker. You hear all the time people want to blame Carmelo, they want to blame Amar, they want to blame D'Antoni, whatever it might be. I don't know, like, whatever that magic, higher power, whatever it was beforehand, was was going away. This is Shattered, Episode 5, Melodrama and Linsanity. The wildly different routes the Knicks took to bring Carmelo Anthony and Jeremy Lin to the team. And why, ultimately, the two stars couldn't coexist. In July of 2010, the Knicks franchise is in a state of transition. For years, the team had been preparing and pursuing LeBron James in the hopes of bringing him to the Garden to save New York basketball. Instead, LeBron chose to team up with Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh to form a super team in Miami, while Amari Stoudemire was an excellent consolation prize. In the Big Three era, he wouldn't be enough. Luckily for the Knicks, another megawatt superstar was looking for a new team to play for and had his eye on Gotham. You may be seated. Friends, we have journeyed here today. The date is July 10th, 2010. It's just two days after the decision. But on this day, LeBron is not the star of the show. Carmelo, do you take this woman to be your wedded wife? I do. LeBron's close friend, Carmelo Anthony, is in a tuxedo. The red roses pinned to Carmelo's lapel matched the plush red velvet draped all over Cipriani's, the opulent restaurant in the heart of Midtown Manhattan. Carmelo is standing across an altar from his bride, Lala Vasquez, who is just seconds away from becoming Mrs. Carmelo Anthony. Carmelo Anthony, you may now salute your bride. I can do it now? You can do it right now, bro. <laughs> Their wedding memorialized via a VH1 reality show, is a pop culture time capsule. On the guest list, Kim Kardashian, Serena Williams, Ciara, Ludacris, as well as a handful of Carmelo's fellow NBA competitors, LeBron James, Chris Paul, and newly signed New York Nick Amari Stoudemire, who was one of a series of guests who gave a speech at the wedding. But I heard it all started falling apart at the wedding. 
in uh, July. And, and then Melo made the announcement in August. That is George Carl, who back in the summer of 2010 was Carmelo's head coach for the Denver Nuggets. Carl was not at the wedding, but in attendance was Stan and Josh Kroenke, who owned the Nuggets. Well, I don't think Melo said anything, but I think some of Melo's family, maybe his brothers, got up and kind of spoke at the wedding with Josh and Stan Kroenke being there, saying that, you know, Mello, want, Mello would be better back in New York, and we want him back in New York. So I don't know the exact details of it, but I heard there was kind of some sensitive commentary that kind of pissed off the Cronkies. The New York Post reported that during his speech at the wedding, Chris Paul, then with the New Orleans Hornets, joked that he, Carmelo, and Amari should form their own big three with the Knicks. Amari and Carmelo's brother, in their speeches, took a more serious tone and amplified Paul's message. There was a wedding, and there was a wedding toast, and that toast had something to do with Chris Paul and Carmelo Anthony and Amari Stoudemire playing together in New York. Howard Beck, now with Sports Illustrated, covered the Knicks for the New York Times. I guess to the extent that that leaked out, or was leaked out, <laughs> intentionally thrown out there somewhere, maybe that was the official kickstart of the melodrama and the start of all the events that eventually led to him being traded to the Knicks. But in absence of that uh, wedding toast, it would have happened anyway. <laughs> that was just a signal. The sum of the decision morphed into the season of melodrama. Even though Carmelo would be a free agent in a year, James Dolan and the Knicks were supremely motivated to trade for the Nuggets superstar to guarantee his arrival to the Garden. And unlike LeBron, this time around, the Knicks already had an enticing star on the roster. Yep, the Knicks, the Knicks are back. You know, it's, uh, yeah, the yeah. day MRA signed, or the day that he was introduced, he literally stood in front of us, pulled on a Knicks cap, and said, the Knicks are back, baby. Which in 2010, even at that stage, was a really meaningful moment. One of the biggest stars in the league had chosen the Knicks in free agency and put on their hat and said, the Knicks are back. And they'd already been through hell at that point. Two storylines dominated the Knicks' 2010-2011 season. One, could the Knicks get Carmelo? And two, how Knicks fans were falling in love with Amare and the young talent surrounding him. Danilo Gallinari, Wilson Chandler, Ray Felton, and Landry Fields, all 26 years old or younger, all of them productive and promising. Knicks head coach Mike D'Antoni finally had a point guard that could run his offense. After years of relying on the steady but unspectacular Chris Duhon, Felton turbocharged D'Antoni's system. By mid-January, Amari's Knicks were 22-15, and 15, and the team was on their way to making their first playoffs in seven seasons. Signing Amari put a certain charge into the franchise and into the fan base. They win eight games in a row at one point early in that season, and that's when you knew that there was something special happening here. This was the first time that I, as a Knicks beat writer, saw the Garden really charged, that there was a palpable excitement and op optimism around this team. Even as good as Amari was playing, Knicks president Donnie Walsh believed that the team needed a player like he had in Reggie Miller when Walsh was with the Indiana Pacers, a closer. With Amari, he's not a guy you can go to at the end of the game. He's not that type. You could, but you needed somebody that could finish the game. Carmelo was a true go-to guy. What I mean by a go-to guy, at the end of the game, you know, he knows, the other team knows, and the entire stands know that he's going to get the ball and he's going to take the shot. And he makes it. When you see these games over the period of time I've seen, there's usually guys on very good teams that can do that. 
The season-long trade negotiation between the Nuggets and all teams that wanted Carmelo, including the Knicks, was a contrast in styles. Howard Beck says for the Knicks and Donnie Walsh, the initial guiding principle was patience. Donnie comes in with a certain gravitas, but a methodology too, created over years of being a team executive. He was a great negotiator. He was not somebody who was gonna go all in and say, here, take everything we've got. He wanted to play the patient game. Donnie Walsh wanted to do this in a way where he could get Carmelo Anthony, if it were, if the price were right, if he could give up as little as possible, that's the way you do this. Running point on the negotiations for Denver's side was a dynamic young executive in his first year on the job, Nuggets general manager Masai Ujiri. But Ujiri was at a disadvantage. Carmelo had indicated early on that he wanted to go to New York, which could have scared off other teams from making a strong offer. So, the Nuggets GM went about creating a larger pool of trade partners to increase demand. And so when the Nets got involved, when the Rockets were rumored to be involved in the Carmelo talks, when the Lakers were rumored to be involved and dangling Andrew Bynum, their really promising young center, the Nuggets, I think, were probably among the the parties leaking all this out. They wanted to keep stoking the market and keep pulling the Knicks back in. Early on, it should be noted, there were reports, including one from me, that the Nuggets were not interested in what the Knicks had to offer. As early as September of 2010, the Nuggets were putting it out there, we don't want what the Knicks have. There's no deal to be made there. What that really meant was the Knicks hadn't put enough on the table yet. This is how negotiations go. And these negotiations played out very much in public through leaks. In the race to the trade for Carmelo, the New Jersey Nets were considered the strongest contenders to upstage the Knicks. But at that time, the Nets weren't the glamorous superstar destination they are now. The franchise was still playing in Newark, two years away from moving to Brooklyn. The season before melodrama, the Nets went a disastrous 12 and 70. But Stephen Bondi of the Daily News, who covered both the Nets and the Knicks during melodrama, says the Nets were a real threat. I've talked to a bunch of people after the fact, and I've heard two different stories. One is that the Nets were just, you know, negotiating to boost up the Knicks price. The other thing I heard, and I actually heard it at the time, and then I heard it afterwards, there was some talk behind the scenes. If the Nets traded for Carmelo Anthony, he would have re-signed with the Nets. Now, a lot of attention has been paid to how Knicks owner James Dolan influenced the Carmelo trade discussions. But Dolan was not the only owner took control of the negotiations. Mikhail Prokhorov, the man who made his fortune in gold, is saying no to the biggest nugget in basketball, Carmelo Anthony. Denver's also About a month before the trade deadline, Nets owner Mikhail Prokhorov declared in dramatic fashion that the Nets were backing out of the Carmelo trade talks. That was crazy because, so we're in the Prudential Center where the Nets were playing at the time in Newark. All of a sudden, we get some, I forget if it was if Gary Sussman was the public relations director at that time. I think he came into the press room and said, hey guys, Mikhail Prokhorov is having an emergency press conference right now. And we're like, what the hell? Like Mikhail Prokhorov, like the owner of the team, he never talks anyway. So we, we entered this room, nobody knew what he was gonna say. There comes a time when the price is simply too expensive. I'm instructing our team to walk away from the deal. Like in his Russian accent, it sounded it sounded like uh, 
like something out of Rocky Four. And then he said something about he doesn't text message. I'll send the message over by carrier pigeon. You know, I never met uh, with Carmela and I never spoke with him. Uh, maybe he sent me email, but really I don't use computer. It was just a crazy situation. And of course, nobody really believed that they were really canceling trade negotiations because that's not the way it works. If the Nuggets came back and said, hey, we're willing to take your offer, the Nets would have done it anyway. So to go through that whole process was also something I had never seen before or after. The ongoing saga that was melodrama may have been entertaining for fans to read about in the local papers, but for the organization who was about to deal Carmelo, that year was a season from hell. The locker room was irritating. The guy that wants to leave your team, the traitor of your team, and then every day you got to say it's okay. And it's really not okay. Nuggets head coach George Call says it was shocking when Carmelo made it clear he wanted out of Denver. Two seasons before, the Nuggets pushed the Los Angeles Lakers to six games in the Western Conference Finals. The season after that, the team was just as successful in the regular season. But in February of that year, Carl was diagnosed with neck and throat cancer. His treatment forced him to miss some games and practices. The Nuggets eventually were upset in the first round by the Utah Jazz. Carl says Carmelo was not disruptive during his last year in Denver, but the looming trade demand itself became a daily disturbance. Melo got married, and that was the summer he decided he wanted to get traded. I was coming from back from my cancer. You know, we're going to try to make this season work with a player that wants out, but he's going to be playing for you. And that was the misery of the season. The season was very difficult until we made the trade. You know, you go in the, when you go on the road, you go into every city, and even at home, when the out-of-city reporters talk to you, they, they ask you the same questions. And so you answer the same questions about every day of your life. You're just kind of saying, well, Melo's doing fine, blah, blah, blah. He, he's still a damn good player. I, I'm proud of his attitude. And most part, that was true. But there were a lot of days that everybody in that locker room was pissed that this trade was hanging over their head. Players would come to me and go, when the hell are you going to make the trade? Tell them to make the trade tomorrow. They weren't anti-mellow, but they were anti-mellow playing and demanding a trade. As the mellow drama season dragged on, Howard Beck says there were signs that the owner of the Knicks was beginning to get more anxious, that the team would miss out on Carmelo, and Dolan began to lean more on the advice of an old friend. As this thing gets closer and closer, as we're in January and into February, Donnie had kind of drawn some lines that he did not want to pass. But at that time, Jim Dolan, who was really eager to get Carmelo Anthony and had Isaiah Thomas still in his ear, Dolan wanted to keep going. Isaiah had been technically gone at this stage for two, two and a half years, but he was never really gone. Isaiah and Dolan were friends beyond the employment arrangement. We knew it at the time, Isaiah was still in his ear all the time. Did Isaiah influence those trade discussions? Probably. Donnie resented the fact that he was being undermined by another advisor, his predecessor, who's friends with the owner, still talking to the owner and telling him what he should do. The trade chatter around melodrama reached this pinnacle in a wild all-star weekend in Los Angeles. The trade deadline was less than a week away, and still, Carmelo was a Denver nugget. What played out in L.A., was akin to the meeting of the five families in the film of The Godfather. Dolan, Prokhorov, the Cronkies, billionaire corporate titans carrying out trade negotiations and covert meetings and conference calls. Donnie Walsh and Billy King, 
the basketball leads for the Knicks and the Nets reportedly took a backseat in those negotiations. Stefan Bondi. Prokhorov met with Carmelo. That All-Star Weekend, that, that year was in L.A. Prokhorov met with Carmelo. Jay-Z was in that meeting. I think Brett Yormark was in this me- meeting. So you have all these people that have nothing to do with basketball getting involved in this trade. So that was going on from the Nets' perspective. You know, the Knicks were meeting with him at the same time or in the same time frame. So you have this weird dynamic where a player's under contract with the team, the superstar player, and he's meeting with two different teams that he's not under contract for. Like, I've, I've never seen anything like that happen before. The Nets went all in first, reportedly offering up four first-round picks and two talented young players, Derek Favors and Devin Harris. That increased the pressure on James Dolan and the Knicks. In a recent interview with ESPN, Carmelo described an incredible scene that resolved melodrama for good. A do-or-die meeting between the Knicks and the Nuggets was held at 3 in the morning that weekend. In attendance was James Dolan, Carmelo, Leon Rose, his agent at the time, a family friend of Carmelo's, and Nuggets general manager, Masai Ujiri. The Knicks and the Nuggets began negotiating their mega deal, and the entire time, Carmelo is sitting right there listening in. I always say this, the smart owners in this league hire really smart people, and then they get the hell out of the way. Jim Dolan has never been in that category of owner. And I think the Carmelo Anthony deal was probably the pinnacle of his meddling and probably the pinnacle of, of having to deal with the consequences of that meddling. Ujiri and the Nuggets started extracting everything they wanted from the Knicks. Danilo Gallinari, Wilson Chandler, Raymond Felton, a future first-round pick, and the option to swap first-round picks in 2016, which became Nuggets star Jamal Murray. And the final piece, the line in the sand, according to Carmelo, was Knicks center Timofey Moskov, who the Knicks did not want to put in the deal, but eventually gave in. Denver sent to New York Carmelo, Chauncey Billups, and a bunch of salary cap filler. Howard Beck reported at the time and continues to believe to this day the amount that the Knicks gave up was something Donnie Walsh would never agree to. This was James Dolan's deal. Donnie did talk to friends of his and associates of his. And I talked to those people in real time. And there's no question, absolutely none, that Jim Dolan hijacked this trade, that Jim Dolan put in more pieces than Donnie Walsh was willing to, and that that frustrated Donnie Walsh, it undermined Donnie Walsh, and it ultimately was one of the biggest factors in Donnie Walsh resigning while still under contract just a few months later. But in our conversation with Donnie Walsh, he did not specifically comment on how involved Dolan was during the Carmelo trade negotiations and defended Dolan overall as an owner. I didn't think he was out of order in any of this with me. He was very interested. He really was committed to trying to get the team better. You knew if if you had a chance to get a really good player, he was going to pay the money. He didn't care about that. I mean, he was going to do it. Did Donnie Walsh tell the truth in the Carmelo trade? George Call, like Howard Beck, heard a different story. Call and Walsh were both graduates of the University of North Carolina. They are part of the Dean Smith UNC family tree. It's a close-knit group that stays connected throughout basketball. And in this case, Call had an extra layer of perspective since he was the coach of the team that was trading Carmelo. You know, the, the rumor I heard was Isaiah Thomas got involved, got to Dolan, Told Dolan, you got to get a superstar. And if the Nets get him, you'll go down the chute. It'll destroy the Knicks. 
And, you know, all the information I did, I never heard this out of Donnie Walsh's voice, but I've heard it from a lot of North Carolina guys that Donnie Walsh wasn't going to make the trade, that he did not, he did not want the Den Denver trade. You know, he thought he was giving up too much. Well, good afternoon. I'd like to welcome Carmelo Anthony, Chauncey Billups. During the press conference introducing Carmelo as a Nick, James Dolan himself, without being asked, addressed on how involved Isaiah Thomas was in the negotiations. While Isaiah Thomas is a friend of mine, a very good friend of mine, he was not at all involved in this process. He wasn't advising me or telling me what to do in any way. And any reports that imply that he was doing that are simply untrue and a fiction in somebody's mind. The sin of the Carmelo trade wasn't that the Knicks got Carmelo. It was what they had to give up to get him. The Knicks got the best player, and that's how I always view any trade. Who got the best player? David Aldridge is a longtime NBA reporter and a senior columnist at The Athletic. It's just that Denver kept asking for more and more, and, and Dolan kind of just superseded his GM at that point and got involved. And when owners get involved and egos get involved, it, it becomes very different than a basketball trade. It could have been a great trade for the Knicks if they had just stuck to their guns and they didn't do that, including, you know, not just the players, but the picks and everything really kind of took some of the luster off of the deal because they made it impossible to add pieces in the subsequent one or two years that would have been, you know, could have been high value, low contract kind of pieces in the draft that could have supplemented Carmelo. And so, yeah, they gave up too much. Adding to the painful price of getting Carmelo was that Carmelo could have signed with the Knicks in the offseason. He was going to be a free agent, but Howard Beck says Carmelo wanted a contract extension from whatever team traded for him. And he worried that once the NBA and the Players Union had a lockout that year after that season, that the terms of his new contract would be less. So he was trying to protect himself financially. I'm not criticizing that. I'm just saying that the consequences for him choosing the money, choosing the extension as part of a trade, choosing a trade period, it hamstrung the Knicks. It forced them to take on Chauncey Billups and his big contract. He's 34, he's on the decline, he's nearing the end. And they used an amnesty provision on him that they would have been better off having to use an Amari Stoudemire a couple years later when his knees gave out and he was no longer the same player. This entire saga does not happen this way. All of the things that befell the Knicks, all the mediocrity that came in the years to come despite having Carmelo Anthony did not have to happen. One person on earth could have changed this entire trajectory for the better for the Knicks and Carmelo. And that person's name is Carmelo Anthony. The Carmelo Anthony trade represented a seismic event in the history of the Knicks, both good and bad. The decision, reportedly made by Dolan, altered the franchise's future. But immediately, the impact wasn't as significant on the floor. Following the trade, the Knicks with Amari and Carmelo played 500 basketball for the rest of the season. They got swept by the Boston Celtics in the first round. That offseason, Dolan shockingly announced that Donnie Walsh was leaving his role as Knicks team president. As he said at the time, Walsh told us that even though at one point he was looking to stay in his role, he lacked the energy to continue running the team. The Knicks job is a very intense job. It's a very big city and everybody seems to be interested in the Knicks and what's going on. Then you have probably the largest press corps Everything you do, the next day you pick the paper up and it's like, whoa, <laughs> you know, some really hard opinions here both ways. Regardless of how chaotic it was getting Carmelo, 
the Knicks now seem to have a clear future laid before them. The franchise had a true superstar, along with a strong number two in Amare. In the offseason, the team made a deal to bring in center Tyson Chandler, who had just won a championship with the Dallas Mavericks. The Knicks were considered a strong team in the East, not elite, but better than any Knicks team since the 1990s. Absolutely no one in the world could have expected what next season would bring. How a supernova from Palo Alto, California, would upend the NBA and bring about a spectacle known forever as Linsanity. Yeah, I'm not going to say, like, we won basketball games because God wanted us to, uh, you know. But there's no question that there was a magic to it. It was, it was powerful. Much more on Linsanity coming up after a word from our sponsors. Discover the latest collections from David Yerman, as seen recently, styled on basketball stars like Jaime Jaquez, Jalen Green, D'Angelo Russell, and others. David Yerman is a celebrated American jewelry company inspired by the beauty of art, architecture, and the natural world. The story of David Yerman begins in New York City with David, a sculptor, and his wife, Sybil, a painter and ceramicist. When the artists began collaborating, their goal was to simply make beautiful design objects to wear. Over 40 years later, the Yermans and their son Evan continue to redefine American luxury jewelry with timeless modern collections for women and men defined by inspiration, innovation, consummate craftsmanship, and Cable, the brand's artistic signature. David Yerman's collections are available on davidyerman.com. What is the recipe for a miracle? What conditions need to be in place for an unexpected explosion to occur? For the reporters who covered Linsanity, the fans who watched it, and the Knicks players who were part of it, they still don't have an answer. Howard Beck. There was absolutely, positively, not a single indication, not a not a, a flash, not a possibility, not a rumor, not a, oh, hey, what about? Like, nothing. There was nothing that anybody uh, could have detected that would suggest that Jeremy Lin was about to explode against the Nets and then keep exploding for the next three to four weeks on the on the rest of the NBA. That's what made it so spectacular and so exhilarating and so inspiring. The Knicks were underwhelming to begin their first full season with Carmelo Anthony and Amari Stoudemire. Carmelo and Amari weren't a perfect fit on the floor, and they weren't a perfect fit together in head coach Mike D'Antoni's system. D'Antoni's offense runs through its point guard, and early that season, the team's point guard situation was bleak. Before Linsanity, this is a, a forgotten chapter of this story, so they tried Tony Douglas at point guard. He was terrible. Mike Bibby was on fumes. Baron Davis had a back issue. They were waiting for him to finally get healthy. They, they had tried everybody at point guard, and nobody was working. And so at one point, Mike D'Antoni had gone to Carmelo and said, look, you're a phenomenal ball handler, you're our best scorer. Well, I'll put the ball in your hands. You can play like the LeBron role or the Steve Nash role in, in the Mike D'Antoni system. You know, run high screen roles, distribute, score. And it would have given Carmelo an even bigger role in, in essence. But Carmelo wasn't interested in doing that. Making things worse was that Carmelo and Amare began dealing with injuries. Landry Fields was a 23-year-old wing player on the Knicks trying to find his role on the team that season. With Linsanity, when that occurred, I think you have, like, Amari went out, Carmelo went out. So, like, our two top dogs were out. You kind of look around and go, like, well, okay, 
you know, how do we, what do we do from here? And so what was left with the group is guys that really had to figure out a way. Jared Jeffries was a veteran big who was known best for the big contract Isaiah Thomas gave him and for doing the little things on the court for the Knicks. We thought our season was going to be over. You know, Melo goes down, Amari's hurt, and, you know, we go out there and we start Jeremy, Shumper, Landry, myself, and Tyson. And then we came off the bench with, like, Billy Walker, Steve Novak, and J.R. Smith. So really, we really had a terrible team. Like, <laughs> Spartan, we played, we played really hard, but we were not that good. The Knicks had no point guards and their star players were in and out of the lineup with injuries. Someone needed to fill those minutes and replace that production, or the next season would go down the gutter. So, the first ingredient for a miracle is opportunity. Now, Lynn was not a complete unknown, but he was pretty close. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's actually a really crazy story, but Jeremy and I had played in the D-League on the same team for the Reno Bighorns. Steve Novak, was a ahead-of-his-time three-point shooting big man who the Knicks signed about a week before signing Jeremy Lin. We had, like, the most stacked D-League team I'd ever seen. It was myself, Jeremy Lin, Danny Green was on the team, Eric Musselman was the coach. We had an absolute squad. I have the memories of playing with Jeremy in the D-League, a place where you usually fear the fact that if the point guard is trying to get his, it's going to be really, really tough for a guy like me to look good, to get his shots, to have the ball right at the right time. But Jeremy was an unselfish player who got me the ball, who was telling me, I'm going to run this for you. I'm going to make you look good. So I respected him so much and knew exactly who he was just from those two games the season before playing with him. Around the beginning of February of that season, the Knicks were 8-15. and 15. Baron Davis was out with an injury. The Knicks ran through a bunch of, to put it politely, underwhelming options at point guard. Lynn is on the roster, but he wasn't getting any run. The Knicks needed someone who could carry the load. But Jeffrey says in that moment, the team was thinking of getting rid of Lynn, effectively ending the magical run known as Lynn's sanity before it even began. Me and Mike D'Antoni even talked about it. Jeremy had played really well in practice, but had struggled in games. We talked about maybe the possibility of cutting him because we needed, because Barron had just got hurt and we needed like more guard play. The second ingredient for a miracle is luck. Whatever it was, divine intervention or a gut feeling that Knicks did not cut Lynn. The next ingredient came in the form of a night on Landry Field's couch. That was one of those, like, this is the stuff legends are made of, right? The mythology of Jeremy Lynn is about sleeping on, Land on Landry Field's couch. Kavitha Davidson is a sports and culture writer at The Athletic and co-host of the Culture Calculus podcast from The Athletic. Jeremy Lin is living in a one-bedroom apartment with his brother. He's sleeping on, on the couch there. His brother had like a friend who was staying over, so he had to move from his brother's couch to Landry Fields' couch. <laughs> Jeremy was not going to be able to get good sleep, so he said, Landry, is it okay if I stay with you? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Like We sat next to each other on the plane, and he slept on my couch that night, and then we had the Nets the next day. You know, I was making the joke afterwards after his huge just success on the court that day where I was like, yeah, it's, it's all me because, you know, he slept in my place on my couch. So it's a magic couch. <laughs> magic. The third ingredient for a miracle is magic. February 4th, game one of Lynn Sanity. Lynn comes off Fields' couch and off the bench to score 25 points and hand out seven assists, facing one of the best point guards in the NBA, Darren Williams. 
you know, I think the initial moment looking back only with hindsight being 2020, you realize that game against Darren Williams where Jeremy kind of, it was the coming out party. Like he held his own against an all-star level point guard at MSG in front of a full building. Yeah, winning and grinning. <laughs> and the chance of Jeremy now thundering down from the sellout crowd. All of a sudden, here we go. You look back and go like, wow, that was special. I kind of need to rewatch that. A magical night for Jeremy Lin. He's the hero from Harvard. As the Knicks get a much-needed... Coming out of the Nets game, D'Antoni moves Lin into the starting lineup. The Knicks win two more games in a row. Games that Lin starred in. That led to game four of Lin's sanity. A prove-it moment for the young Knicks point guard. Because coming to town was the Los Angeles Lakers, led by Kobe Bryant. Are you surprised at the production that Lin's had over the past week? I don't even know what he's done. Like, I, don't, I have no idea what you guys are talking about. I'll take a look at it tonight, though. Who is this kid? Kobe has a confused look on his face. As reporters in Boston asked about the upcoming matchup against Lynn and the Knicks, the Lakers superstar said he's heard of Lynn, but that's about it. At the time, it was perceived as a diss, but Lynn's own teammate, Landry Fields, says he understood where Kobe was coming from. No, we heard it. Uh, I remember I remember hearing that. I might have chuckled and been like, what do we expect? Yeah, like, how many people do know you, Jerry? A battle of two, dare I say, two of the most exciting players in the NBA. Yes, Kobe Bryant, but Jeremy Lin, 36 points, a career high, throw in seven assists. Kobe is saying, you know, I don't know who this kid is. They're talking about, hey, Jeremy Lin, Kobe, what do you think? You know, he's been playing really well. And he says, "Uh, who are you talking about? I don't know who that is. And Jeremy comes out, we get the win, and it's like this guy is, is magic. And you're in the locker room after the game going, Kobe said he didn't know who he was before the game. We just cooked these guys. What was it like to be gunning it out, so to speak, with Kobe Bryant? Uh, well, you know, we just tried to, we just tried to play together. We weren't really too worried about what the other. Maybe Lynn always believed that he could produce the way he did during the Lynn Sanity run. But what made Lynn Sanity special wasn't just Jeremy Lynn. It was Lynn plus the role players surrounding him: Tyson Chandler, Landry Fields, Jared Jeffries, Steve Novak beautiful thing about any team sport but basketball specifically is it's never going to be about the five best guys on paper it's about what we did with linsanity it was about it's about that magic that you can create by each guy being better because there's complementary pieces to them every guy that was on the court at that time made the other guy better and in many cases made several of those other guys better jared jeffries was the most selfless big guy he would call plays when he would recognize the way defenses were playing things to get other guys shots he never called his own number one time landry was slashing while jr smith and i were spotted up on the corner so it's the it's 100 the complementary nature of basketball that makes you elite as large as lynn sandy was growing there was still acquaintance about it all beyond bible study one of Lynn's favorite activities, according to Landry Fields, was playing Monopoly on his iPad against his Knicks teammates. It was us two. Tyson got into it. But yeah, it's competitive. We, we had competitors on the team, and you didn't want to get taken down in Monopoly. As part of that is, you know, there's some decision-making where you have to play some strategy, of course. Like, what are you going to buy? How are you going to use your money? But, you know, you, gotta ha- you have to have the good roles and everything, too, to land on the right spots. And when you start buying all the houses and the hotels, you know, you got to avoid those spots. <laughs> Lynn and the Knicks beating Kobe and the Lakers bumped Lynn's sanity up another level. But what happened a few nights later 
The Knicks on the road against the Raptors in Toronto launched Linsanity into a state of delirium. Kavitha Davidson. Everyone talks about the Raptors game, that game-winning shot. I mean, there's nothing like a buzzer beater to cement your legacy, right? Everybody's got to have one. You see him come out at half court, 17 seconds left. He's surveying the, the court, right? Like he's basically taking stock of what his options are. He waves off his teammates. He's basically like, I got this. That was kind of the first time I think Jeremy Lin took ownership of Lin's sanity. He waves off his teammates. He dribbles twice, once through the legs, just for flair, right? You know, that's what you're going to do with 17 seconds left in the game. And the Knicks will hold it for the final shot. The crowd on its feet here at the Air Canada Center. Lin puts it up. Jeremy has the ball top of the key. A couple seconds left. Knocks down a three to win the game. Toronto fans are going berserk. We're not the Raptors. We're the New York Knicks. They're loving Jeremy. They're loving what we're doing. It was just like all those moments you think back to and you're like, wow, this, you know, it was special. Linsanity continues. After that shot, Linsanity broke through the stratosphere of the sports world and bled into all aspects of culture. In entertainment, Saturday Night Live focused an entire skit around Jeremy Lin and his punnable last name. I mean, I am literally Lin Love with this Jeremy Lin. We can all agree we'll never get tired of Lin Buns. In finance, Bloomberg News created a metric based around Lin's rise and his economic impact. It was called the Lindex. Four basic metrics go into the Lindex. First, MSG share price. It's had a nice run up more than 11% just this year. Second, Jer Jeremy uh, is Jeremy uh, doing good, and I knew about Jeremy before you did. In politics, President Barack Obama himself was being asked about Lynn during an interview with Bill Simmons, then at ESPN. And look, it, you know, it, it elevates uh, this great sport all around the world. I, you know, it can't hurt uh, ratings for basketball in China. As the president mentions, Lin's sanity was a global event. Both of Lin's parents were born in Taiwan, and in Lin's ancestral home, there were early morning watch parties for Knicks games. Lin's sanity is catching on even halfway around the world in Taiwan. He struck again Tuesday night, igniting a crowd in Taipei that went to a bar at 8 in the morning to watch him on TV. Lin's extended family even became celebrities in Taiwan. The New York Times reported that at one point, some of Lin's family members left their home in Taipei to get away from all the media assembled outside. But of course, the epicenter for Linsanity fandom was among Knicks fans. It was the joyous time as a Knicks fan I'd had um, since the 90s. Andrew Yang, now a candidate for mayor of New York City, was a Knicks fan preceding and during Linsanity. Part of it for me was I was like, how much of this is the fact that like, I'm Asian-American, Jeremy Lin's Asian-American, and I'm just like, yeah, because I play basketball, too. And it's like, this is, like, my dream. <laughs> you know? um, uh, but then, you know, I talked to, like, my, my friends who were Knicks fans, and they were just as excited as I was. Like, that, there wasn't, like, really, like, anything unique to any one community. I think Knicks fans as a community still reflect on that time as one of the brightest times or even the brightest time over the last 20 years. Jason Concepcion is a podcast host at Crooked Media and a lifelong Knicks fan. It was wild. I remember taking the uh, cab home from work, going down the BQE, and you could look up in the buildings. You'd see TVs with like the MSG pregame on. It, it was just like a, this amazing feeling of of hype and excitement. They were having watch parties in Chinatown, like so surreal and crazy. It just didn't seem real. 
it didn't seem like, uh, it, it felt like a complete dream. Steve Novak says the energy from the fan base spilled into the locker room and onto the floor. The way it was embraced by the fans in New York was, I mean, it was special. It's like I always heard New York fans like, be careful, they're going to they're gonna take you out, you better be good. But in the, in the case of Linsanity, when something was special and it was going right and it was awesome and it was like something you'd never seen before, the response and the energy and the presence of the fans was like nothing you had ever seen before either. I mean, they built us up to be doing something that was religious. Religious. In our conversation with Novak, he talks about how during the Lansanity run, faith played a factor in how well several of the Knicks were able to play. You know, I, I think the relationships of the guys was a big part of it. I think there was Bible studies that we did that, um, and I mean right through the time of Linsanity, where when I say there was like a powerful force at work, you know, guys were bonded through their faith when we were playing during Linsanity, and it, and, and, and it felt like felt like we were doing things that we were not capable of doing. Jeremy and I, we share the same faith. In that moment in time, the impact Jeremy had on me personally was enormous, but it did 100% feel like there was something bigger going on that was really, couldn't describe, but you could feel and you were experiencing it. You know, call that God or whatever it is that you like. If you do take a step back, and you, like, you kind of look around and you're like, what is happening right now? Yeah, I'm not going to say, like, we won basketball games because God wanted us to. Uh, you know, that's that's not what I'm saying. But there's no question that we were in a, in a moment where we were reading and talking and studying about how you could accomplish all things and you could do more than you ever believed. And we were, do and we were accomplishing more and doing more than we ever believed at the same time. And so uh, there was a magic to it. It was, it was powerful. As powerful as faith, and belief are, sometimes it isn't enough when you're running into a buzzsaw that was the 2012 Miami Heat. So the Heat game was considered kind of the end. It wasn't the literal end of Linsanity, but it was considered, it was kind of the, the symbolic end. Linsanity was wobbling. By the time the Knicks go on the road to Miami to play the Heat, Howard Beck says Lynn was working through a knee injury that wasn't revealed at that point and standing in his way with the NBA's preeminent super team. This is the LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh, Miami Heat. All they care about is the championship and they've got no time for some underdog story. Oh, is this kid's come out of nowhere and now he's grabbing global headlines and he's the, the darling of the league. Like, we got no time for this. For Landry Fields, it was clear LeBron, Wade, and Bosh had a little something extra for Lynn. You could tell from just warmups and like the crowd that was there early, like something was different. Like they were coming out to prove a point. And I, I felt it for sure. I'm like, this is going to be a dog. <laughs> like this is going to be one right here. They dogged Jeremy like all game. Picked him up full court. Yeah, they were out to prove a point. And that game against the Heat, Lynn went one for 11 from the field and had eight turnovers. For the first time in nearly a month, Lynn looked human. Forces both external and internal will bring about the end of the phenomena known as Linsanity. For most of the Knicks' run, the team's two stars, Amari Stoudemire and Carmelo Anthony, were in and out of the lineup. Jeremy Lin was the focal point of the team. But Amari and Carmelo started to get more minutes around the time of the Heat game. And their reinsertion into the lineup altered what the Knicks were doing well with Linsanity. 
Carmelo is a different type of player, you know, he, he's heavy ISO, especially at that point in time. And for the system that I think D'Antoni wanted to run full time, it requires a lot of this 0.5. If you got nothing, get off of it. Trying to integrate those two back was, I think it had its challenges for sure, because it was just different ways of, of playing. And I think it was easier for Amari because of the history. I think it was more difficult for Carmelo to, to do that. His success, and he's one of the most gifted offensive players this game has ever seen. You know, you're, you're having almost these opposing forces just in basketball philosophy, trying to make their way forward together. So it was, I think we were still a good team, um, but you can kind of feel whatever that magic, higher power, it was beforehand, was was going away. Novak says there was no way Linsanity could continue the way it was going. The quick ball movement, the wide open offense, with Amaria Mello coming back. Truthfully, I don't think it could have worked out. Basically, in order for it to continue the way it was working would have been for Amari and Mello, who are both all-star level guys, to basically say, hey, we're gonna kind of uh, become extreme role players and not be who we are and what got us here. Basically, the end was in the waiting, right? It was like just waiting there with Melo and Amari to come back. It's wishful to think that that was going to happen, but the magic that we had going, I think we were thankful for that we had it while, while it lasted. And um, trying to work those guys back in, it was a crazy thought to think that you'd say you're trying to work two all-star guys back in, but that's what how good Jeremy was. That's how good our offense was at that time, was you were hoping to be able to keep that magic going. Lynn's success in the D'Antoni system brought into the foreground a battle Carmelo and D'Antoni have been carrying out behind the scenes. Simply put, Carmelo wanted to play one way, and D'Antoni wanted his team to play the complete opposite. Howard Beck. Carmelo, whose specialty was isolation play. Now, however you feel about isolation play, about jab steps, you know, isoing on the wing or in the elbow or backing your guy down and dribbling the ball for 10 seconds, however you feel about that, I can tell you that Mike D'Antoni, at least at that stage of his career, was not really enamored of it. He was a, the ball moves around, he would like to say the ball finds energy. He wants the ball to move, the players to move, he wants a high pace, and he wants his best players to be playmakers. Well, Carmelo was a ball stopper and not a playmaker. Linsanity was a series of explosions. One day, no one knew who Jeremy Lin was. And then suddenly, he's a worldwide icon. The Knicks morphed from a losing team to beating Kobe Bryant and the Lakers. That rapid rate of change continued as Linsanity combusted and broke apart. One day, Mike D'Antoni is the architect of the Linsanity offense, and then suddenly, he's gone from the garden. James Dolan. Today, uh, we have mutually agreed with Mike D'Antoni that he will no longer coach the Knicks. Mike went in this morning and the... Just about five weeks after the start of Lynn's sanity, Mike D'Antoni resigned as the Knicks head coach. In most circumstances, D'Antoni's resignation would have been shocking. But inside the team, Novak says there was a clear sense that even as great as Lynn's sanity was, D'Antoni's time at the Garden was almost up. No, we, we had an idea. I mean, uh... My relationship with, with Coach D'Antonio was, we were, we were close and communicated and on the same page about kind of what was going on. And to be honest, Mike D'Antonio, when Linsanity was rolling, he was able to implement and run the open concept, fast-paced three-point shooting offense that Mike D'Antonio is known for. And there's no doubt that later in the season, uh, we were unable to continue to run the offense that way. And I think that um, Coach D'Antonio knows 
his system. He knows what kind of offense he wants to run. He knows the kind of team he can be successful with. And I think when he felt essentially that he was unable to make those calls and to be the coach of the team um, and implement the things he wanted and run the system that he wanted, he understood that it might be best for both sides, him and the franchise, to, to separate. Howard Beck. Carmelo and Mike D'Antoni were always doomed to failure. It was never going to work between them. They're just too different in the in the way that they saw the game and certainly the way they saw Carmelo operating within the offense. D'Antoni had been frustrated, and it was pretty clear. That it was it was kind of one of those me or him moments. And it depends on who you ask. Like, did Mike say he's got to go or I've got to go? I've heard that version of it. There's you know also the version of it where they basically said like if you can't figure out a way to make this work, then you should go. There's also just Mike D'Antoni walking, throwing up his hands and saying I can't do this. Like it's not gonna it's not gonna work. Whatever the truth is. The bottom line is Mike D'Antoni and, and Carmelo Anthony were not a good fit. It was always inevitable that he was going to go. Mike Woodson was named interim head coach. After D'Antoni's resignation, the New York Post ran a back page that had an image of a tombstone. Inscribed on it was R.I.P. Lynn Sanity. Lynn would play seven more games before being knocked out for the year with a knee injury. The Knicks made the playoffs, but lost in the first round in five games to the Miami Heat. A major question loomed over the offseason. What would the Knicks do about Jeremy Lin? Jeremy Lin was a restricted free agent. And so that meant that whatever he got on the free market, whatever he got in free agency, the Knicks could match and retain him. They had total control of the situation in that regard. But the way that you're, the way that you should operate, and I think most GMs would tell you this, if you've got a player who's a restricted free agent who you really value, it's rarely a good idea to say, go test the market and see what you're worth and then come back to us. Because what you're telling him is, we're not sure you're that valuable, or we're not sure how valuable you really are. And we don't want to set the market ourselves. Go out there and you, you go set the market for us and we'll decide whether or not you're worth retaining. It sends the wrong message. If you really want a guy, if you really appreciate a guy, you preemptively make the offer. Lynn did receive an offer from another team. The Houston Rockets first gave Lynn a three-year, $19 million deal. But then the Knicks let it be known that they would match the deal. So the Rockets increased their offer and added a special quirk in the third year of Lynn's deal that would have cost the Knicks an extra $35 million in luxury tax payments. Of course, that is a lot of money. But if there's one positive thing everyone says about James Dolan is that he will pay whatever it takes to see the Knicks win. Except in Lynn's case, he didn't. Jim Dolan never in his history of, of the Knicks has ever balked at paying coaches, former coaches, multiple former coaches, former team presidents. Like he's never balked at, at, at paying and overpaying anybody. Suddenly he's cost conscious. I think the Knicks, or at least Dolan, resented Jeremy Lynn getting that signing that deal with the Rockets. But again, the Knicks let that happen. At a certain point there, Dolan, I think, decided he was offended by Jeremy signing this deal. But there was also some resentment in the locker room. Carmelo Anthony was was not on board with Jeremy Lin. Carmelo Anthony referred later to that ridiculous contract, referring to Jeremy's contract. J.R. Smith had said something about it. Players never talk about each other's money. That's like one of the unwritten rules. Nobody talks about each other's money or their contracts publicly. And here were two prominent guys who were also tight, Carmelo and JR, talking about that later. So yeah, there were other forces at work, I think, in Jeremy Lin ending up leaving the Knicks. Lin's run as a Nick ended, not because of production, but because his rise to starter became personal. Mike D'Antoni, in an interview with Yahoo Sports, was asked whether Carmelo and others resented Lin during Lin's sanity. 
Dan Tony said, quote, it was real. It was there. Amari Stoudemire told reporters that not everyone was a fan of Lynn becoming a new star. For Landry Fields, it still sort of shocks him to this day, everything that happened, the heights that Lynn's sanity reached, but also how quickly it all ended. When asked why Lynn's sanity ended so suddenly, Fields struggled to come up with an answer. It's a really good question. Um, but when you kind of bring up all those different aspects and how it <laughs> how it transpired, yeah, it makes you think kind of like, dang, that, that was like this magic moment that fizzled and everyone went their separate ways. It's a really good question that you, you, you'd have to do revisionist history here <laughs> to figure out what is it that, I don't know, like it, it would be a really interesting deep dive into that moment, what led up to it, Lynn Sanity, and then afterwards, and really focusing on that after part, like what happened? How does something that so, seems to be so good for all of the NBA, not just New York at that time, not just for Jeremy, it took the NBA by storm. And then, you know, what goes into what happens? Is it injury? Is it ego? Is it pride? Is it, you know, he leaves, Dan Tony, you know, exits. Yeah, it'd be it'd be a fascinating study. I don't I don't have a I don't have a good answer for it. On next week's episode of Shattered, we'll look at Phil Jackson's return to the Knicks, from the excitement of Chris Stapp's Porzingis to Phil's battles with Carmelo in the press, messing with his star player so openly and publicly in a full scale dumpster fire. Much more on that next time on Shattered. Subscribe to Shattered wherever you get your podcast. Check out more great stories about sports and culture, plus ad-free episodes of Shattered. Go to theathletic.com forward slash Shattered to get a special offer on a monthly subscription. Shattered is part of The Athletic's culture coverage. Shattered is executive produced by Chuck D., Lori Bula, and Matt Havia. Mike Smeltz is the producer. J.P. Hesser is the engineer. Taya Papula is the audio editor. 